From the LA Times studios, this is Asian Enough. Every week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American celebrity about the joys, the complications, and the everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Frank Schoen. And I'm Jen Yamato. This week on episode four of our show, comedian Margaret Cho talks about her groundbreaking career and what it's like to have kicked the door open for the Asian Americans who came after her. Like, I feel like, oh, I actually went from like very current to very old school Asian, which is great. <laughs> you know, kind of an elder thing of like Empress Dowager vibe. <laughs> like if I have uh, some turtle soup brewing on the side. I love Margaret Cho and I also love what she's meant to this community because growing up, she was pretty much the only Asian face I even saw on TV when she was starring on her 1990 sitcom, All American Girl. Man, that was a different era. Like, the way people talked about being Asian was very different. I mean, a lot of people didn't really talk about it at all. Right. People didn't talk about it. They didn't see it. And they certainly weren't doing comedy about it like Margaret was doing at a time in her career way before Crazy Rich Asians, before Fresh Off the Boat, and before this new era of seeing at least more Asian faces in film and TV. Let's get to it. I'm also very glad that uh, you brought a special guest. Oh, Lucia. Oh, excuse hello. me. She usually doesn't make any noise. <laughs> That's unusual. What kind of dog is she? She's a Chihuahua. Chihuahua. Mm-hmm. Cool. Oh. How long have you been together? Since February of last year. Oh. But she's very vocal today, which is odd. <laughs> she's usually pretty silent. We've got Lucia on the mic. She's a little bit like Lucia. active today. Usually yeah. she'll just sit in here because um, she's used to doing um, a lot of like recording. Because she's there for the podcast and stuff. So she's, um, she's a little bit like curious because we're oh, in a different place. She is. She's got she's a lot like of radio exploring. experience. Yeah, like. she does. <laughs> it's pretty thrilling to have Margaret here. I, I, I uh, used to listen to your comedy albums in high school. My one other Asian friend in middle school like recommended it to me. Oh, <laughs> so, that's great. So yeah, it's, it's really cool to see you here in I'm person. Glad. I'm glad. And Frank grew up in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> not a yeah. lot of Asians around. So. No, well, there's Henry Cho, though. Remember Henry Cho? He's um, a Korean American comedian. Oh yes. Who uh, he's actually from Tennessee, uh-huh. and he has a very thick Tennessee accent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, that that was uh, my first Asian American comedian that I saw. And he was out there doing a lot of like nightclub shows. He was a headliner when I started, mm-hmm. so he was really inspirational to me. He also was on uh, Friday Night Videos. If you remember that show, which was like kind of like when network TV tried to do uh, music videos in the huh. 80s and 90s. And so he was on there. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I love this idea, though, of like young Frank growing <laughs> up in Tennessee, where you told me that like you were one of the only Asian kids in your whole school. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I was uh, one of the only three, and then the other two were my friends. And, uh, we, <laughs> of course. We, yeah, We were the, the core of the, the chess team and the debate yeah. team and the math team and everything like that. Of course, that, so. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I saw a comedian uh, with an Asian last name, and I was like, I'm going to listen to this. <laughs> yeah, you know, so. awesome. Well, you have been so many things that America tells and has told Asian Americans that they can't be mm-hmm. you know, funny. Oh, thank you. Loud, mm-hmm. uh, sexual, queer, mm-hmm. confident. Yeah. The list goes on. Yeah, it's good. And how do you like think about that? How did you get, get through that? What is that experience like for you to look back on? Well, I think that it was sort of my family um, had a gay bookstore in the 70s and the 80s. And 
So I grew up a- around a lot of queerness and a lot of redefining queerness. Also, the people that I was around, they were all getting full body tattoos, like in the 70s, which is actually quite a big deal if you think about tattooing in America. It wasn't like that popular then, you know, and, and so they were getting pierced. They were going to see Harvey Milk speak. They were talking about the early part of gay politics and then, you know, being around that same community growing up and also the juxtaposition of my family who are pretty traditional Korean. My grandfather was a a minister in the Methodist church where a lot of people, it was called Kamnikyoe, which is in uh, San Francisco. And it it was this place where a, a lot of like Korean immigrants would go and they established this big church there and they had this community. So one side of the family was in this very Christian Korean community. And then the other side was very queer. And so th- there was something about that that made me realize that it was possible to straddle both worlds and that it's that we're welcome there if we want to be and if we we allow ourselves that. So I think that was probably, the, I think the motivation that I needed to just go forth and and do whatever, you know, that, that my family had a lot of freedom. And, you know, my parents grew up in a very restrictive environment in Korea. And so when they came to America, they realized that they could uh, do whatever they wanted, that they didn't have to behave anymore. Even if my grandparents were here, it didn't matter because they they could uh, kind of maneuver around the world. They could do whatever. And part of that was being around gay people, being around tattooed people, being around art, being around politics, even pot. I remember there was one very scandalous incident where my parents <laughs> and my aunts and uncles had marijuana. This is like in the 70s. And it was such a crazy thing that they got high, but they did. And it's not like they were like stoners or anything, but it was just a very outrageous thing for them to do. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tacovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. If you want to take your company from 2 million to 10 million, or 10 million to hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools to turbocharge your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business. Finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow, all in one place, right from your phone or computer. That means that you can run your entire business from anywhere, even if you're working from home. With NetSuite, you're covered. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 20,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Six Ways to Run a More Profitable Business, at netsuite.com enough. NetSuite. Business grows here. Being a comedian, being queer, being tattooed, being loud, you know, mm-hmm. your parents were kind of down for all that. Did you experience a lot of support from your family? They they kind of expected it because I grew up around it. And so that was the way that they witnessed young people doing, you know, whether it was having, um, 
you know, that sort of like that experience of coming out or um, getting their first tattoos or whatever it was, that there was something about it that they just kind of accepted it because they, they were surrounded by young people who were doing the same thing. And my father always like pushed me towards hanging out with these gay men because he was like, they're going to teach you about art and fashion and music, and they're going to give you really good taste. That's sort of his thing. Like, <laughs> these people are the tastemakers, and they're going to imbue you with culture that is really important. So it, it's kind of a very progressive view of queerness and, I guess, um, cultural education. But I think it really worked. Was that one of the reasons your parents came to the States? I think they came to the United States to pursue education, also because— they uh, were limited, I think, in their opportunities. And, um, you know, in Korea, there was like two universities that you could go to. And then after college, if you wanted to pursue um, like a master's or whatever, there was just not a lot of options. I see. So they came here for that. Well, I wanted to ask about your sitcom, All American Girl. Mm -hmm. When it came out, uh, I read that there were a lot of mixed reactions from, you know, cultural critics and, Mm -hmm. you know, people in Koreatown, conservative parts of the Korean community. And I guess I was struck by following the conversations about Crazy Rich Asians, Fresh Off the Boat. Conversations were somewhat similar, you know, mm-hmm. uh, similar criticisms, you know, uh, similar sort of uh, conversation. And you, you've had the chance to observe both. You know, mm-hmm. are we just having the same conversations about representation, you know, over and over again in every generation? Or have they changed? And if so, have you noticed a difference? Well, I think it's just that we're so unused to being seen that when we are, it Um, makes a lot of people have very strong reactions, whether that's positive or negative, you know, and I don't think that we're used to it yet, you know, and so that's part of it. I think the other part is that we have a great deal of comfort being a kind of silent minority, and we have a great deal of comfort being invisible, which is unfortunate because um, that isn't going to serve us in in the idea of fully becoming like Asian American, you know, that we uh, deserve to be seen just as other Americans are. But for some reason, I think that in our own sort of psyche, we don't exist. Like we don't exist in these stories that are kind of part of the makeup of who we are as Americans because we don't see ourselves as often. And when we do, it's both alarming and a shock and takes a bit to absorb it. So sometimes people have very emotional reactions to it, whether it is like, I'm so excited to see this or I don't think that's who we are. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that there's never going to be one perfectly accurate representation of who you are unless you actually go and make it. That every um, kind of story being told, there's a generalized version of that story because it's like, we want to just be the sort of broader appeal to the masses. I mean, I think that it's really about um, wanting to assert our own individualism onto that story. But at the same time, it's like you've got to create your own story if you want that. So it's weird. It's a weird thing. You're right. And Asian Americans have so much individuality to assert, yes. you know. And uh so much immigration has occurred, you know, that every generation almost has to relearn everything the previous generation knew. You obviously probably get asked a lot about representation, mm-hmm. both now and, and back then, you know. Are you getting asked the same questions or different ones? I think different ones, maybe because I've been around for such a long time, so I've 
witnessed a couple of cycles of this sort of coming of Asian Americans to cinema and television. Like, there's been a couple of waves of that. 1994, when I had my show and Joy Luck Club, which was sort of supposed to be this thing of like, okay, we're really going to start seeing Asian Americans now. And then that didn't happen. And then so now, again, you know, 25 years later or whatever, it's started again. So now there's more momentum because there's more uh, a social media identity that we can uh, sort of voice our opinions about things and our support and all of the stuff that we can do to put ourselves behind the idea of kind of multicultural media universe. <laughs> yeah, no, it, I mean, the internet does make everything different, right? It makes the yeah. conversation so much larger. Yeah, I, I guess I was kind of curious because we've seen these cycles of representation. I've, I keep learning about, you know, Asian American movie stars I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. What gains have you seen from representation? I think that there's a lot of gains. I think that there's much more of a sense of Asian American identity as opposed to Asian identity. And of course, I'm mm. a huge fan of all the Hollywood like things, the programming, K-pop, movies, whether it's like from anywhere, you know, all of the different kinds of things we're exposed to from Asia and then also all of the different Asian American things. I think that there's a clear identity in when it comes to Asian Americanness, which I think is really exciting. Well, you've also had this, in addition to your comedy career, in addition to writing and, and now podcasting, you've had this film and TV career. Mm-hmm. You were nominated for an Emmy for mm-hmm. a very funny yep. TV role. Um <laughs> 30 Rock. 30 Rock, yeah. Has this like more recent wave of Asian American, I guess, visibility in Hollywood made you want to like put more energy back into that side of your career? Well, I always wanted to put energy there. You know, I think that it's just now there's probably more opportunities there for Asian Americans. Certainly there are. It can still get better too from here. Um, but now we have a sense of ourselves and who we are. And we have quite a few Asian American celebrities out there who are mm-hmm. doing really well. You know, of course, like Aquafina mm-hmm. and Constance and, and Randall and uh, John Cho always. Um, you know, there's so many great, great people out there sort of just going forth and being big stars, which is really cool. Yeah, I've heard you on your podcast just be so excited for all these other mm-hmm. Asian American projects, like to all the boys I loved before. I know. Well, I love Jenny. Ew. Jenny is so great. Jenny Han and um, Daniel De Kim and Jessica Gao and I were in um, Shanghai about a year ago, and we were kind of just like going there to do um, these different things with Pearl Animation, which is um, this amazing animation studio. And we were just going there, and we were just talking about. All of the stuff that had gone on, you know, since Crazy Rich Asians and everything. And it's really amazing that we're all in different areas of entertainment and we're seeing the shift. It's nice to just have more people to champion. Mm -hmm. You know, just more. Yeah. That's what you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like kids growing up now, you know, have a lot of examples. And I feel Mm -hmm. like representation really matters a lot for kids because that's when you're kind of figuring out what you are and what you're supposed to be. and, Mm -hmm. and, And I don't know. It's good to see. Especially with your experience that you've talked about Mm -hmm. on All-American Girl, Mm -hmm. of having, like, at the time, all these people telling you your character is not Asian enough, stuff like that. It seems like you've been dealing with that in many ways. So many ways, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's my generation also because our um, parents— wanted American kids. Like, it was a very sort of a, Mm. like, a status thing to have, like, fully Americanized children to the point where they didn't speak Korean at all. So we would not be able to answer in Korean. Like, our parents would speak to us. We had to answer in English. And so 
Because of that, I have a very strange, like, babyish Korean accent and, like, this weird fear of speaking Korean. I can understand perfectly what anybody's saying, but it's hard for me to answer because I had such a complex about answering in English. There is, like, the disconnect of, like, we want you to be fully Americanized, but then when you grow up and you are, it's a disappointment somehow. Like, it, it changes generationally what an Asian, what society decides an Asian American is supposed to be. Right, the expectations change. Right, but we grew up with, with the expectations, mm-hmm. and so somehow, you know, who we are is wrong now. You right, know? And, right. And that's so silly, and I just hear that from so many Asian Americans that they don't feel like they're Asian enough or whatever, and it's just like, who we are can't be wrong, right? Right, but it's a weird thing to put a value judgment on, especially because those, uh, those sort of, like, things, those details of that shift— through generations and even through sort of the time period or what they're looking for. And so there's really no claim on what Asian is. It's like our definitions are all right, but mm-hmm. it's very, it's a weird thing. Like you can get accused of being what it like is a banana, which is like mm-hmm. yellow on the outside and white on the inside, which I think is such a weird concept to begin with anyway, too, because there's like this encouragement from greater society, which is subtle about whiteness and how it is a a privileged way of being. So wouldn't you always internalize that anyway? Like, because just society wants us to be that. And maybe as a mode of survival. Yeah. yeah, Right. Everyone lives in society. They're influenced by it. The least we could do is just not be mad at each other for that. But it's funny. That banana term is like the earliest like playground insult that like Asian American kids all would hear. But that or a fob, like mm-hmm. yes. fe- uh, fresh off the boat or banana, you can't really win because we're all degrees of both. Mm-hmm. I think that it sort of begins when you separate the kimchi from the rest of the food. <laughs> <laughs> That's like when when whiteness starts to take over, like your family. <laughs> and then the, the kimchi fridge moves farther and farther away from the kitchen. So it's like in the pantry and then it's in the garage. And then you get rid of it entirely. Like, there's a kind of thing of, like, our food is somehow shameful. So that's sort of the heart of our Asian-ness is, like, this sort of, like, dirty fermenting cabbage that's in our house. Mm-hmm. The the smelly lunchbox story. Like, yeah. there, there's so many smelly lunchbox stories. And then in parallel with smelly lunchbox stories, there's also, like, now you're supposed to really know and like every Asian food that is of your ethnicity, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, for me, I don't really like chicken feet mm-hmm. and, like, you know, chicken feet, it, it, I've eaten it. It's fine. It's not like I'm afraid to eat it. You know, right. it's just, it's not my preference. But also you know? you're like a total foodie and you That's have true. come to learn the ins and out of so many different kinds of Asian cuisines as well as other ones. Yeah, totally. Like food is like my window to my own culture, to my mm-hmm. parents' story, mm-hmm. to to other Asian cultures as well. You know, it's just that I don't have this essentialist notion that like you're supposed to like certain things, you know. It's so funny right. that the idea of a separate kimchi refrigerator. <laughs> I've never heard yeah. that. And I feel sad for anybody that that's happened to. No, it's like totally like we're like hiding our foreignness by taking the smell and moving it, mm. but not getting rid of it. You just move it farther and farther away from the heart of your being. And I think that's kind of like what that sort of process of Americanization does. You know, it's like whether it's kind of the shamefulness of foreignness that I don't really agree with, but that's kind of how it turns out sometimes. Did you ever feel that professionally? I don't know. I think because uh, professionally, it was always about 
sharing the Asianness, like if, or or talking about Asianness in a way that anybody could understand, which is kind of just about being other. Because humor is really kind of the art form of the outsider. So there, there's something about that that makes sense there. Yeah, one mm. thing I really like about hearing you talk about non-Asian things, obviously, mm-hmm. on your podcast is when you deconstruct comedy, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the form that you've made your career around. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because mm-hmm. it's about coping. It's a very, like, a uh, strong um, kind of force that helps you to kind of understand things. Look around you. It's a wireless world, and that means everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know Raycon earbuds started about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds in the market, and that they sound just as amazing as other top audio brands you know. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet. With six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice, noise-isolating fit. When I got my pair, they were game-changing. I work from home sometimes, and it's important for me to stay focused. Raycon's wireless earbuds let me listen to the high-quality music I love, whether I'm at my desk or walking around the house. The company was co-founded by Ray J, and celebrities like Cardi B and Brandy are obsessed with Raycons. So pick up a pair and see what the hype is all about. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash Asian Enough. That's buyraycon.com slash Asian Enough for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash Asian Enough. From an early morning breakfast burrito to a bottle of wine after work, sometimes you just need what you need delivered fast. And that's where Postmates comes in. On days where work gets crazy, I know I can count on Postmates to bring me the lunch I need to keep my energy high and make my deadlines. Just yesterday, I got a handful of last-minute projects and hadn't had time to pack lunch. Luckily, Postmates saved the day and delivered me my favorite salmon poke bowl. But Postmates doesn't just deliver burgers and sushi. They actually make my life easier with grocery delivery and whatever I can think of delivery, too. Convenience stores, clothing stores, you name it. So no more trips to the store. No more late-night fast food runs, and I don't even have to worry about where to grab lunch anymore. Just download Postmates on iOS or Android. Find your favorites and get anything you want delivered within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving Asian Enough listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days on Postmates. To start your free delivery, download the app and use code ENOUGH. That's code ENOUGH for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it. Postmate it. You said uh, comedy is the art form of the outsider, and I really like that. Uh, What does that mean to you? Well, it means that because of constantly having to uh, 
kind of explain your role in society that you you're gotten used to it and uh, there's a comfort there where you can make jokes about it and the jokes come from a sense of like feeling like not belonging and having to somehow deal with that spiritually mm-hmm. so i like humor being this main tool with which you navigate unbelonging and what you yeah i see and coping and also um the, it's it's a way to belong because then it's like okay well if i can explain this then other people will understand it Let's talk about comedy then. I was wondering, like, who are the sort of young Asian-American comedians that you like now and and, and what's sort of different about the comedy scene these days? I love Ali Wong. You know, Ali Wong, like, was the first Asian-American woman's comedy special that I watched. It was probably... 20-something years after my own. So it's like a very sort of very long period to not see other Asian-American women, other Asian-American women doing comedy and and doing um, the kind of comedy that she does, which is very, uh, very hard, very strong, very powerful, very funny. And, you know, it's it's a kind of a call to action, but it's also just really fresh, too. So it's a really exciting experience for me to see her and Bobby Lee I love. I think he's really hysterical and, you know, just somebody that has a very childlike spirit, too. I really laugh when I see him just so, so much. I love um, Brent Weinbach. I'm, like, totally obsessed with him. I think he's great. <laughs> he's really great. He's half Filipino and half Jewish. So it's a very hapa experience, which I think is definitely exciting, Um because that's a different voice, too, whether, it, you know, Steve Byrne also has the Hapa experience, which I think is really important. So, you know, there's um, a lot of different people. Um, of course, Aquafina, you know, she's definitely a little bit in a different category because she's an actress also, but also uh, a really cool um, musician and comedian and sort of a musical comedian, too. Seeing Joy Luck Club and All-American Girl come out, why wasn't there sort of a wave of representation afterwards? Like, why didn't that kick off a new era in Asian-American representation? I think we didn't have a social media to back us up. I think that also um, we were still developing a presence in the entertainment world because there were, uh, at that time compared to now, relatively few producers, writers, directors. Now there's a lot more. I felt like we were really kind of feeling that sort of sense of, you know, Asian-American families also pressure their kids to not go into these professions like acting, music, whatever it is, entertainment. So they they were dealing with their first careers as doctors, lawyers, oh, you know, wow. teachers, right. and then transitioning into acting or, tra- you know, like it's a weird time because the, the way that we're raised often, we're like told to uh, put off our dreams for our parents' dreams first. So that that kind of has an influence too. Mm -hmm. So you had a lot of people that were delaying their careers for like 20-something years Mm -hmm. and then going into it. So there's a weird disconnect. Playing catch-up and also, you know, feeling the effects of that. And so now we have a generation of Asian Americans who were raised by people who wanted them to follow their dreams or that sort of had a sense of like, okay, we— we can let our kids do what they want or I don't know. But I think yeah. that's it. I think that's the kind of intergenerational dynamic that you see in movies like The Farewell this year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the the wants and desires yeah. that are that are embraced. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. by different generations and different parts of even one family. No, yeah. like I, I do volunteer in this student journalism camp every year and I sort of see what young people think and they don't have the baggage that I have. Right, you know? it's different. Like I feel like I'm sort of this lost generation of, of Asian American who You're grew like, up in yeah. a Do you guys era know how, how easy you have it? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. very different. Um, and The Farewell is a great example of a new kind of American movie because it's actually an American Absolutely. movie. Yeah, even totally. though some of it's in Chinese and it's filmed in China, there, it's actually an American film because it's from an American perspective. And it is like kind of like that thing of like the duality of how do we deal with the American sensibility going into a very foreign to us world, even though it's our family. And we do sort of know a little bit like Aquafina is perfect with that. Her character knows a little bit, but not everything. And mm-hmm. there's like the the part that doesn't agree you know, I think that was done so well, and and that's a great movie. But it's it's certainly a perfect picture of where we're at in terms of like generation. Yeah, and the painful irony of America classifying it as a foreign film when yeah, it is the most Asian American thing I've it's ever seen. Ameri- it's you the know? most yeah, American yeah. film, you know, and it's such a funny <laughs> thing. But it's like you can't. I don't know. It's like they people can't really figure that out. Yeah. Right now, there's this kind of big debate raging in the comedy world um, about sort of political correctness, right? Mm-hmm. And, and whether or not that's killing comedy. And Shane Gillis, kind of the incident with him uh, making those jokes about Chinese delivery people in, mm-hmm. and, in New York and and getting fired off of Saturday Night Live has been a big source of debate. Uh, Andrew mm-hmm. Yang's sort of uh, jokes about, you know, uh, knowing a lot of doctors on the campaign trail yeah. have been another sort of source Talk of debate. Talk about extremes uh-huh. of a spectrum. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> And so, yeah, I guess I was just wondering what your thoughts were during the Shane Gillis thing. And basically, Shane Gillis was hired to SNL, and then he his old podcast clips of insulting Chinese people for comedy kind of came to light, and then he was quickly fired. I think it's interesting. I mean, of, of course, the winner here is Bowen Yang, who's really hilarious and really, really shines on that show, yes. which I think is is really incredible. You know, for that show— which hasn't had any kind of Asian-American presence ever. So this is like a really exciting thing for him. I think with Shane, I think it's probably good for his career because the people that like that kind of comedy can go find him, you know, and that's fine. I don't think that political correctness kills comedy. What it does is that it requires comedians to have more skill in expressing their ideas. So, you know, you can't just get by with very casual racism. You have to give me some more than that I think that uh, if you're good at what you're doing and if you're a skilled comedian, there there's going to be a way for you to be racist. <laughs> you really just have to couch it in a way that is pretty profound. And so I think that, you know, racists will still have a shot at comedy. You just have to be really good at it. And mm. so that I think that the cream will rise to the top. <laughs> right. The challenge is always to be funny, though. Yeah, right? but yeah. That, that's the thing. is like to be funny in the face of whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, really, the impetus behind political correctness is for everyone to have a voice. Mm. And that's not a bad thing for comedy. You mm. know, what it does is it challenges you to uh, make your voice heard above all of these others. And so I, I do think that Skill has a lot to do with it. I think it's about rising to the occasion. Well, I guess I'm uh, with the Shane Gillis incident. I think for me that failed the test of being funny. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just like oh, yeah. really hostile things about yeah. Chinese Americans well, and NYC. It's like, if you're gonna go there, be better, right? Right. right. It's like you at have it? to be really good at yeah. it, and it it doesn't really count as a joke because it's not even enough. Okay. 
there was a conversation that like Asian Americans weren't able to laugh at themselves. You know, why can't you just laugh at yourselves? And 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 so like I'm I'm just kind of wondering like what's an example of like a joke about Asian Americans that lands and what's what's one that doesn't? I mean, it's it's sort of hard to qualify like the nature of a good joke, but if you hear it, you know, okay, that's pretty good. Like it's like I get that. I can roll with that. But I have a hard time in general when a racial joke is made by a white comedian. Yeah. Just oh, because yeah. it's like you know what, that's not going to fly. I mean, it's already not going to fly. Mm-hmm. Like, it's already, like, you're already starting off in, un, in uneasy ground. Like, right. you're already starting off on the wrong foot. <laughs> so I, it's hard for me to say, like, okay, what white person has gotten away with a good Asian joke? I'm kind of not sure. But I'm sure there's somebody out there that can do it. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I guess it is, like, who you are matters, you know? I who guess, you are matters. Yeah. It's like the source matters you know, it's got to be really thoughtful. I couldn't recall, like, what a good one would be. Maybe because it hasn't happened. Yeah. But I do yeah. think it's possible. It's possible. So the day that happens, we'll be not afraid to applaud it if it's good. <laughs> if it's I good. Guess. Yeah, there's got to be somebody who can do it. I mean, Russell Peters has some really great jokes, but he's Asian. Mm-hmm. He has some really good stuff about squatting, which is really funny. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm like, but the source is, the fact that he's Asian, you know, right. that I'm not... Squatting like the Asian squat? The Asian squat. Mm-hmm. You're right. Mm-hmm. Which right. is like, it's really funny to see him do it. And it's also that he's Asian that that I can get with it. But he's, he's South Asian. So it's kind of like, it's still from a different perspective, but it's also the same perspective because it's all Asian. So it's very... And it's informed. It's very informed. Mm-hmm. And it's for an Asian audience. Right. That's the other thing is like, who is the audience for? for the joke, too, that's considered. And so that there's a lot of things happening. I've heard so many of these, and they, I've never been in on the joke before. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. always been, you know, my identity is the joke, you know, yeah. or, or that's the whole joke, you know. Yeah. And, and so I, I think it does it does matter, you know. And I feel like uh, it's almost becoming this genre of comedy now to sort of crap on political correctness. Right. But that's not the right way to go about dealing with political correctness. It's really about raising your own awareness. I mean, it's it's not like a, we can't do it. You know, it's, it requires more effort. Right. There are just more audiences now. There's mm-hmm. an Asian American audience. There's a black audience, a Latino mm-hmm. audience. It's not just one sort of default white audience. And yeah. everything in between and all the crossovers. Exactly. Yeah. So in terms of your own voice and like your relationship with even embracing your own voice across platforms, Mm -hmm. you know, beyond the stand-up comedy stage. How would you describe the Margaret show of today? I think that I just have been around to see a lot of things. So, like, I look at my work a little bit like I look at, like, Nancy Kwan or James Shigeta or even Anna Mae Wong, like these Asian-Americans who had to operate in a Hollywood that just did not accept them. Or, like, Jack Sue, like, very old-school Asian. Like, I feel like, oh, I actually went from like very current to very old school Asian, which is great, you know? (laughs) So like, I definitely feel uh, like I belong in that group. It's certainly something for me that's really exciting. And I still participate in a lot of like the dailiness of comedy, which is just going to the comedy club and hanging out and like doing shows and and seeing people. So for me, it's still really pleasurable and and really fun. And I still discover a lot. But I do think that I've been around for long enough where it does feel like like a kind of an elder, 
like thing of like Empress Dowager vibe. <laughs> like if I have like uh, some turtle soup brewing on the side, like it's that kind of like I'm always in kind of a throne mm-hmm. or something. You know, um, that's nice. It's a good it's a yeah. good way to be because I think like also in our Asianness is that we really respect our elders and that's really done good for me, you know, because <laughs> then it's like everybody bows. Like if I go to Korea, I'll go to like SNL, which they have there, which is amazing. It's just like the SNL here, but it's there. And it's like the set is the same. And 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 Lauren Michaels is actually an executive producer. But so if I go there and I go in the dressing room, all of the uh, the SNL players, they stand up and they bow. It's so uh, funny because I remember doing that for like my parents, friends, or anybody in our family. And so now it's like me and it's really, it's, it's awesome. Wait, I had no idea there was a Korean version of SNL. Yeah, it's so weird. I know, it's super weird. And all of the cast members look like kind of like mashups of like Martin Short and Fred Armisen. <laughs> or like um, some of the women are really like very much mashups of some of the different actresses that you've seen over time. Like it's a very interesting um, idea about casting because they do sort of like look through the lens of SNL's past. Mm-hmm. Imagine if just for one weekend... The SNL switched they broadcast. Switch. That would be great. <laughs> but they do all these like sketch. They have like K-pop stars as um oh, as like so the, much the celebrities, yeah. you know. And then they have like the band, and it's just because show business there is so huge. I mean, it, it it's just like America. They have their all of their own celebrities, which of course we do. We do love K-pop here too. So it's the same thing. I think my mom watches those. Is it like a kind of a talk show too or whatever? And they do yeah. variety stuff? Yeah, and... they do variety stuff. But I mean, they definitely have like the same set. And then the, you know, the big <clears throat> star comes out who's promoting the big movie and they do a sort of a monologue and then they do sketches. And yeah, it's a very established show, but it's the same exact format. Mm-hmm. So Margaret, um, we want to ask about your podcast though. Mm-hmm. It's fairly relatively new. Yeah, yeah. What was the concept behind it? You have all these great guests on. You have these wide-ranging conversations. Mm-hmm. You're such a good listener oh, also, which I love to hear. It's, that's good. That's a funny thing to say. No, but that's good. What's the idea behind this podcast? Why did you want to launch it? Um, well, I had a podcast in the very dawn of podcasting, which is like 2012. And it ended up being actually quite a, um, a musician podcast. So I ended up going to a lot of music festivals and, and interviewing a lot of musicians. And then... I got really busy and I couldn't do it. And so then in the return to it, I just thought, well, I'm just going to invite over people that I like. And so I do it at my house and it's my friends usually. And and so there, there's a lot to talk about, you know. And, and um, so my parents would always go to like the Chinese food and then I would like sit under the table and I would crawl between all the purses and I would steal everybody's lipstick and eat it. <laughs> and then I would listen to all their conversations that everybody was having. And and that to me was like the most fascinating thing of just listening to people talk. And so the, the, the podcast is kind of that. It's sort of like eavesdropping. Like I love podcasting because it's kind of like you're listening to people talk on the phone or you're talking on the phone or something. There's something about it that I think is really appealing to me that is a kind of a childlike sense of wonder and also eavesdropping and also participating. So I love it's that. Fun. It's like you're letting your listener underneath the table. Yeah, so they can just like eat lipstick. I mean, I, I'm so <laughs> gross, but I actually ate a lot of lipstick doing that. And um, they were real. everybody was really mad at me, but it was really fun. <laughs> So over the years, in all of the challenges that you've overcome in terms of being for a long time one of the only visible Asian Americans in your industry, 
what were the things that helped you get through that? Um, I don't know. I mean, I just really, I enjoy the art of stand-up comedy. So for me, that's always just a very fulfilling enterprise and um, something that I really believe is good and really can promote change and, and really advocate. I think that's kind of always been it. And also finding different outlets for that, you know, whether that is, um, you know, writing or music or whatever it is. It's it's just to me, it's about creating. I just think that being publicly Asian in the 90s when, I don't know, the people, the way people talked about Asianness was mm-hmm. much less progressive. You right. Know? It's super weird. But and, it's like such a weird thing, like to think about how far we've come in a relatively short period of time. Mm-hmm. But I feel it that way about myself, too, when I look at who I was. Back then, I didn't know that I could give myself permission mm-hmm. to yeah. be all these different things because yeah. at the time, nobody's telling you. Right. And the ways we talked about ourselves were less sophisticated as well. Mm-hmm. I bring that up because, you know, now there's research showing that microaggressions and these things have like psychological tolls on yeah, people. Yeah, of course. You know, and uh, just being publicly Asian, you know. Like, right. I'm just thinking from from a mental health perspective must have been really hard and And, you know, that's something we try to talk about on the podcast because it's something that, you know, Asian Americans never talk about. Well, right. And it's also what what is the toll of like invisibility, you know, because it's so hard to even uh, quantify what that is and what it feels like because it's invisible. So it's really impossible to know where do we even get the power to feel like it's okay to be visible or or any of that. You know, it's a very difficult thing to be made real. And it is kind of like in the movie um, Invisible Man when they wrap their body with a mummy, like bandages, so that they can see. You can make out the, mm. the person. Yeah, yeah, it's that's kind of the process that we're in, is that kind of like wrapping to see what our dimensions are because we actually don't know. Wow, that was an incredible analogy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, we're, we, yeah, we're essentially like tracing the outlines of something we can't see with the bandages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like a very, it's a very poetic thing because bandages are like sort of about injury and bleeding. And, and so that, that sort of carries over into the experience too is that we're sort of limping into this new world with this newfound sort of sense of visibility, but we're still covered up. Do you find yourself feeling hopeful for the yeah, future? Yeah, for sure. Because I do think like it's like we've advanced so much in such a short period of time. And it really does kind of like prove that stereotype of, of like really studiousness and like good <laughs> students like we're very much like a fast study, a fast learners. So that's that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's an interesting process, but I've seen so much progress that it's it's very hopeful. So, Margaret, we have this recurring segment with all of our guests that we also participated called Bad Asian Confessions. Mm -hmm. The idea is like a confession booth to share an experience in which you might have felt at some point in your life, either because of external or internalized forces, that you weren't Asian enough. Frank and I have a lot of those examples. Oh, well, my bad Asian confession was that, like, in the 80s, I started wearing Doc Martin boots, which is really hard to take off when you go into a house. So I would wear the boots in the house. And you can imagine how upset this made my entire family. Because it's like everybody's, like, house is just, like, the first— um, when you open the door, you can't even open it because there's so many shoes in the way. <laughs> so this was, like, a major problem. But they were really hard to unlace. <laughs> 
They were like a 16 holes, you know, that like a tall dark Martin root, not like a without a zipper. Oh, yeah. I put them on in the morning. I'm not taking them off. And um, so that was very bad Asian. Okay, that was one of mine is that yeah. I still now don't always take my shoes off yeah. at home. I'm sorry. It's a I, lot. I, I, it's a lot. I ask. do now, but only because I have to clean the floors. <laughs> That's the only reason. <laughs> I do take my shoes off in the house. Uh, and I, and for my, like, 25th birthday, I made everyone stop in the middle of a party and take off all their shoes. Oh, that's good. Well, thank you so much for coming in and thank talking you. with us about Thanks. these things. Thanks. This has been great. And yeah. Lucia, a doll. She's really—she was pretty her. good. She's, there's a couple of squeak squeaks, but she's, she's pretty good. That's oh. one of the calmest chihuahuas I've ever been around. Yeah, she's like. very good. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Do you have a bad Asian confession that you want to share? Do you need to get something off your chest? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. Maybe we'll play it on the show. To end today's show, we've got some incredibly sad news. Our senior producer, Lina Anwar, passed away last week after battling an aggressive form of leukemia for more than a year. Lina was smart and funny and kind and spirited and extremely skilled at all things audio. She grew up in Southern California, went to UCLA, and worked at StoryCorps, NPR, Marketplace, KPCC, and KCRW before joining The Times. She helped us build the podcast unit here and worked with me and Frank to launch Asian Enough into the world. It really would not exist without her. So our hearts are breaking for her and our thoughts are with her family. So we just wanted to say thank you to Lina, to her family, and to her friends. Last June, Lina needed a bone marrow transplant, but she couldn't find a donor in the National Stem Cell Registry who was a full match. Her brother, Abbas, was a half match, so he became her donor. The percentage of donors of South Asian descent in the registry is tiny. It's something like 2%. But we have the power to change this. The more donors there are from all backgrounds and ethnicities, the better the chance for a life-saving match. If you want to be a part of the National Bone Marrow Registry, go to join.bethematch.org. And that's it for the fourth episode of Asian Enough. Thanks to all of you for listening. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato, and by Frank Xiong. Our senior producer is Rena Palta. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and our original music was composed by Andrew Epin. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Lina Anwar. We love you always. Come back next Tuesday. We've got ESPN journalist Mina Kimes. I have always loved sports, but I never aspired to be in sports as a career. Never aspired to be on television, never aspired to do commentary. Just didn't really seem like something that somebody like me would even do. If you like Asian enough, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, Camila Victoriano, and Clint Schaff. And remember, if you're going to be racist, at least be funny. But also, don't be racist. You know, racists will still have a shot at comedy. You just have to be really good at it. <laughs>